Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 84 of The Leadership Window. Glad to have you along. I got to get out on the bike today. By bike, I mean the motorcycle. Um, I went to Easley, South Carolina to facilitate a board meeting for a free clinic there that I'm working with. And when I can, I take the bike. I didn't have to have flip charts and projector and all this kind of stuff, so it was great. I don't know why I'm telling you this other than to say that in Columbia, South Carolina here in mid-January, it's close to 70 degrees today. So I'm sorry for the rest of you, and um, um, but I'm not sorry. Anyway, uh, glad to have you along. Uh, Dr. Whitney Anderson is our guest today. She's the principal for campaign services at Fox Advancement, which is a leading fundraising firm. And, and I, I'm going to say something in a minute because we'll talk about fundraising and I have, a, I have this thing about the term fundraising. But what I love about what I read in her bio is that it says she's passionate about helping nonprofits. But it doesn't say she's passionate about helping nonprofits raise money. It says she's passionate about helping nonprofits clarify their vision and tell their story and link their mission with generous donors. That's a whole different thing to me than fundraising. But we'll talk about that, uh, won't we, Whitney? Um, welcome to the program. She's a, a skilled strategist and a project manager. And um, we're going to get into some interesting questions somewhat around a capital campaigning and capital campaign consulting. Who knows? We may talk about grant writing and some other things as well. But I can guarantee you that, uh, Whitney, that most of our listeners are paying attention right now because we, while, while all of our listeners are not nonprofit leaders, many, if not most of them are, this is a leadership podcast framed through the lens of the social sector. So most of our, our listeners are, but I'm going to turn it to you pretty quickly here and let you uh, do a much better job of introducing yourself and saying more, a little bit about yourself. Tell us about the firm and your work and how you got into it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Great. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm really happy to be here. Well, just a little bit about my background. I've spent the vast majority of my career doing work with nonprofits, and that started when I was in graduate school, uh, working over the summer as the box office manager at a really small little engine that could arts nonprofit. And this wasn't my first role in development or in fundraising, but I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to these small nonprofits where it's an all hands on deck approach. And I was working with the development team and marketing and communications to really build this world-class experience for the people who saw the plays and productions at this nonprofit. And I just started thinking, this is where my heart and passion is, working with these mission-driven nonprofits to get the resources they need to do really good work in the community. So after I worked a couple of summers with this nonprofit, I decided to take a grant writing course and got some really good experience in what it takes to build a narrative and put together a budget. 
and then was hired as a grant writer for the firm that I currently work for. And I will tell you that my classroom experience writing grants did not quite mimic the real world experience of putting all of those applications together, but still a good starting point for me. And uh, the firm that I work for is called Fox Advancement, and I've been with them going on 13 years in a wide variety of roles, starting, as I mentioned, as a grant writer and then moving on to manage capital campaigns. And now I'm the principal for campaign services, which means I oversee a number of capital campaigns happening where we're located in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, but also around the country. We are a fully remote firm with consultants in Minnesota and nationwide. So we have a growing geographic footprint, which is really exciting for us. So I work with a team of lead consultants who do feasibility studies, who do some strategic planning work, and then implement major fundraising campaigns, usually new buildings or renovations, although we, we do any major fundraising campaign, whether it's programmatic development, endowment, a focused fundraising effort that requires a lot of planning and execution to make it happen. So that's a little bit about the work that we do, and I am just really excited to talk more about campaigns with you. You know, as you were talking early on, I it was just reminded of my early days in the nonprofit sector. People who know me know that I have a United Way background across the country. I spent probably six different United Ways, a state association, the National Professional Council. I was really deep in the United Way world, and what I loved about it is how much you learn. You know, and you were talking about how you just, well, I did this and then they got kind of threw me into this. And that's sort of how the sector <laughs> works is you're, you're forced right. to learn some things, especially in a small a nonprofit where you just got it. You just have to do it. I mean, you learn everything. Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, I, I learned everything from how to put a budget together to how to write a news release properly and send it out to the media, you right. know, from, from, uh, certainly sharpened public speaking, but also learned how to measure outcomes for social programs. And it's like, wow, the things that you learn because you're passionate and because it has to get done and has to get learned. And then you throw on top of it, your, any formal education. And I love what you said about you know, the difference in what you learn in a classroom versus what you learn in the field, they're both valuable, but they're not the same. And right. uh, it's almost right. like you need them both. You know, it's like you're telling you, you're, you're learning through the crucible of the work, how to communicate and you have a PhD in interpersonal communication and what you learn in the field is just not the same thing, but it's compliment. Anyway, I was just, I was kind of chuckling inside myself about how, <laughs> how we in the nonprofit sector so many times learn what it is we know. We just, we just, we just, because we have to. So, um, and you found Absolutely. a spot, you found a spot, um, with Fox that seems to be working out after 13 years. And if I'm, um, yeah. so you mentioned a number of things and one of them was capital campaigning. And if I remember correctly, that's, that really is sort of your specialty with the firm is the capital campaigning and the major campaigns. Let's just dive in. What I would ask you, first of all, I, I get, for small nonprofits in particular, they've heard of capital campaign, but they often are either scared to death of it and want nothing to do with it. They don't think it's for them or they underestimate it and they don't realize how big a deal it actually, they actually underestimate it. Um, what is the difference? How would you, how would you define it? 
not just, well, one's for capital, one's for a building and one's not, but how would you define the, the dynamic, the, the approach to capital fundraising versus let's say an annual campaign or fundraising mm-hmm. events or things like that? What in essence makes them functionally right. different? Right. Well, for the vast majority of clients that we work with, a capital campaign really signals the next cycle in an organization's life. So they're they're reaching a point where they've outgrown their space or their programs are growing at a pace that they can't quite keep up with and they need to make a change to accommodate that growing need. But oftentimes this capital campaign marks a really momentous time where if you're looking across the timeline of an organization, there's this big star around the capital campaign because it it signals um, sometimes plans that have been in place for, for years and are being executed in a real way. It signals the growth of a donor base, um, security in many ways for an organization, although that can go both ways. Sometimes an organization approaches a capital campaign and they're they're taking the leap and they need to do that to get to a level of security. But I, I would say that it's this cornerstone in an organization's history where they are saying, you know, this is our big leap forward. This is us saying to our community and to the people that we serve that we're at a point of growth where we need to do something far above and beyond what we would do with an annual fund. We're asking people to maintain their annual support and then make a special gift for something that's going to make a real change. And that is something that we coach our clients on all the time. Um, it's it's very tempting when you're approaching a capital campaign to get really focused on the capital. And of course, that makes sense. You have to do that by necessity. But that sort of story is not what inspires donors. It's not what inspires the community who's going to rally around the project. The building or the renovation or whatever you're doing to go to that next level is going to enable greater change or impact for the people who you serve. So threading the needle in that way, um, I think also answers your question about how it's different. It's, It's this bridge to this next phase of impact for an organization. Which means you you can't do them too frequently or you'll get, you'll get fatigued. (laughs) You're like, Oh, we're, we're growing. (laughs) Um, I love though, how you framed it, that, that a capital campaign signals, uh, a, a, a new chapter in the organization. It signals a significant growth. It tells us, it tells a story all by itself. It says we are successful. Mm-hmm. We're growing. Right. Uh, it says that the community supports us because we're growing. And uh, I really love that. I almost think it could be a, almost a vetting, you know, it, if, if what you're thinking about doing in terms of, if you're thinking about a capital campaign and it doesn't send that message, Maybe right. it's, maybe it's not a capital campaign or maybe it's not time for you to have one. Like I really mm-hmm. like that framework, even as a, as a vetting, a decision maker as to whether or not to even hold it or how to hold it. If it truly right. does signal that kind of change, I've never heard it framed quite that way before. I really like that. Mm-hmm. And, and you, um, one of the things when you, when we first connected, one of the things that was, I think a nuance to your work is, 
when an organization is running a capital campaign during a time of some leadership transition. So yes. whether whether yeah. or not, and, and I know there's probably a number of different kinds of scenarios we could paint there, but um, I'm curious as to, like, that's a body of work for you. So I'm curious as it to is. how frequently yeah. that comes up and what are some of those challenges? And should you ever run a, a capital campaign in the midst of a leadership transition? Maybe you've already yeah. begun one when the leadership transition happens. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah. tell me more. That was an area that really fascinated me. Yes, yes. Thank you for opening the door to that. Uh, we have had sort of a unique experience at the firm um, over the past three to five years, working with a number of organizations where the leader has already had in mind that either mid-campaign or by the end of this campaign, I will be transitioning out of my role. So that's one scenario where the designs are already in the leader's head to have a transition um, during or at the end of the campaign. Um, sometimes for a variety of circumstances, that decision is made mid-campaign is a little bit more unexpected, but the leader decides on, on an exit. So there are some opportunities and challenges related to this uh, leadership transition. And we have coached a number of clients through how to structure their communication when this is their situation. So if we know that a leader is going to be transitioning out and, and we know the time, um, we really start working backwards from that exit date and planning a really detailed communication strategy with all of the stakeholders of the organization. Because as you know, and, and I'm sure many of your lis listeners can relate to this, major capital fundraising and stable, consistent leadership go hand in hand in the minds of, of many donors. So when we are in the situation of a leadership transition, really the, the key notes to hit are we've planned for this and everything's going to be taken care of. So there's a tone of reassurance that the leader has either a plan in place or oftentimes someone in mind to take over. So if we can communicate who that successor will be, either internal to the organization or that a formal search will be taking place to identify the successor, what the timing of that will be, if there's going to be overlap with the current leader. And then we always want to back up from the public announcement of this transition and pick apart those donors who are going to need to hear that information first. We don't want anyone to be blindsided by the information. We want to make sure that there are these multiple levels of communication so that when the public announcement is made, it just makes sense. It clicks in the minds of the people who are reading it. And I actually think there are some pretty beautiful ways to do this during a capital campaign. And it links back to the question that we just discussed. What does a capital campaign mean for an organization? It's this step into the next life cycle. So if you have a leader who has put blood, sweat, and tears into planning for that campaign, has helped launch the campaign, and then is passing the baton onto someone who can bring the organization into that next phase. That makes sense in the minds of a lot of donors if you do it 
really elegantly it's, in the communication. Yeah, that 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 is a huge if, and it sounds pretty difficult to do. For example, if um, and I'm going to exaggerate this, but a CEO, oftentimes a major gift in an organization is really a gift to the CEO. And that yes. sounds weird, yep. but it, but it, that's where the relationship happens. So the CEO has a relationship with so many of the community leaders. And if they are truly those respected, particularly those kind of iconic CEOs in the community, oftentimes people will give because that's who's asking them. And so it's, it's awkward at best to have the CEO go and say, we want you to give a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to this, uh, this thing. Cause we're growing. Oh, but by the way, I'm leaving, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, so, so it almost sends this counter message, which of course is not how you go and make the pitch, but you want to make sure that right. that's not the appearance of the pitch. That's not what the, the potential donor hears. And so that you use the word elegant, uh, well, it's a well-placed word in this case because that communication and that ask has to be very elegantly framed as to mitigate any sense of, well, you're asking me for this, but you're not even going to be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you, what are the, what are some of the ways that you mitigate the appearance of that kind of feeling or perception from a donor? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're absolutely right in stating that gifts are are often given because of a strong personal or relational connection to the CEO. There needs to be a a shift, though, with donors who are at those top levels of the organization to you are supporting the mission of the organization. You are supporting the impact that we can have through this campaign. And that's independent from what I, as one person, can do for this organization. Now, again, that's tricky because the leader brought the organization to this point, but what I'm getting at is we have to try to separate one person from what is living out here in a much bigger sense with the organization. Yeah. You, but you have to do that intentionally. Like that has to be part of the communication plan is we got to make this separation so that the people's gift transcends an individual Mm -hmm. or a tenure and it goes to the mission. And so that you, you can't just assume that they'll think that. Right. Right. I mean, that has to be very intentional. And the best case scenario here, and we've been lucky enough to work with so many very thoughtful, intentional nonprofit CEOs where they are able to back out their plans enough where we're not having to do this in a, a rushed sense with donors. The The nonprofit CEO can start planting these seeds even before, far before mm. the announcement is made so that those gentle reminders can be made to donors who are especially connected to the CEO as a person that, you know, that this investment is in the organization and in the future versus in an individual. Yeah, that's good. When are some times to not run a capital campaign? You know, when is it just not the right? I, I'll, give, I'll give you one example. We had an organization that we were working with that had a building. They bought the building. They went in debt for the building. And they started paying on the building. And they've got re- probably the, the ability to pay off that building. Mm-hmm. But part of what they wanted to do to pay off the building was, hey, let's run a capital campaign. 
<laughs> and it was, yep. you know, I mean, when you don't know, you don't know, right? It's you know, right. we know we were advising them at the time and we kind of went, well, it sounds after the fact, it, you know, I don't know that you run a capital campaign to help you pay off a, an existing building, but maybe, maybe you do. I'm, I'm really interested in knowing, do you, can you, have you seen that? Have you seen that work? But that's one example of when you might not run a capital campaign. What are some others in your view? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's an excellent example to start with. We have seen this done. It is possible to do, but it's psychologically difficult for people to get inspired to give when a building is already there. They can see it. Um, Mm. Even if you tell them over and over again, we still need your support to help us pay off this loan or whatever it may be. It's a very different case statement, a very different message that you're giving them versus let's come together and and build something together where you can Mm -hmm. show renderings versus a finished product. So I I think that's one of the big challenges in going about a capital campaign after something has already been purchased or built. One other caution that I would have is seeing a capital campaign as a way to build your individual donor base. Um, We talked to a number of nonprofits where they have certain goals in mind for their fundraising. Um, And it's usually related to individual donors, which is why I'll use that as an example where we'll ask them, you know, where, where is your revenue coming from? What's the breakdown across grants or earned revenue or individual donations? And when they want to grow a certain segment, they think, well, the capital campaign will be exciting enough to attract new people. Now, this is true. I mean, it's very common for new donors to come to an organization um, when they're excited about growth and opportunity. But if you are expecting huge jumps in any one segment, that's going to be really difficult to do because we know how long it takes to properly cultivate a donor. Uh, We just really try to manage expectations when you're thinking about using a capital campaign to, I mean, essentially build a major component of your development operation that can be dangerous. Interesting. Yeah, I I would think so. Um, You have, you want to go after new donors in a capital campaign, but do you start with the existing? I mean, do you say, all right, here in it for, for, in terms of our ask, we're going to start with the people that already love you. Is that where you start? Right. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, That would be our advice is to go to people who already have a connection to the organization, um, make sure that they are well informed of your plans. And there's lots of opportunity to elevate your existing donors to a new giving level through a capital campaign. So we're always doing research and cultivating donors, not only at the top who are giving the largest gifts to the organization, but those at all levels. And I know we're going to be talking about peer-to-peer fundraising today, too. That is an excellent tool in a campaign model to attract those new donors. Really, what I'm getting at is when we see organizations starting with a very small cluster of individual donors and wanting to see exponential growth in that through a capital campaign, um, that that can be a dangerous uh, expectation to have under this model. 
I worked in a community where they they kind of had a among the nonprofits. They sort of had an agreement that you had to take your turn. I mean, we didn't want more than one capital campaign happening in the community at a time. Mm. And so, you know, we you had to kind of time and cycle things. If you were looking at a new building, okay, you look at it. But if such and such an organization already had a capital campaign planned for 2023, you were going to have to wait till at least 2024. Have, do you see that kind of coordination much? That That was kind of unique. That was a learning thing for me. But certainly you don't want to have three or four capital campaigns going on among some of the same donors for in that, in that nonprofit yeah. sector, or it's all diluted. How do you mitigate that? Yeah, that, that's such a good point. And we usually do an environmental scan wherever the, the nonprofit is located to do our best to understand what the capital campaign activity is like. This can be a little bit challenging when organizations are in the quiet phase of their campaign. Um, so we're, we're doing our best to cobble together what we know from our colleagues in the sector and what we can read in terms of public information. But I agree with you that you want to understand what's going on, especially, for instance, we, we work with a number of food shelves. If there are a concentration of campaigns in, in a very similar sector that are going to attract the same type of donor, we want to be aware of that because that could do a variety of things for your campaign. It could stretch out the timeline for your campaign if we're having to essentially take turns with who was there first and, and make sure to be respectful of their donor base. Um, so I think understanding what else is out there is absolutely critical before beginning. Yeah. So let's jump into this peer-to-peer -peer thing. I, I'd like to start with the board um, because... Mm -hmm. Well, this is such a big area of challenge in the sector is how do we engage our board and, and what's the right level at which to engage the board? So many boards don't want to be, you know, quote, fundraising boards. And yet you, the board has to be engaged in the resource development efforts of the organization in some form or fashion. The, the whole point is opening the door and you've got social capital on your board and political capital and reputational capital capital. And how are you using that in financial capital connections to money? Right. Um, what are some of the, the tips? And I guess I would maybe just ask, you know, if you can think at, at a very practical level, some best practices you've seen where a board has really gotten it right. What does that look like when a board during a capital campaign is functioning exactly the way you'd want a board to function? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important as we're going into this conversation on peer-to-peer -peer fundraising to really define what we're talking about and the rationale behind peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. So we we study year to year these surveys that are done by various bodies in philanthropy that ask why people are motivated to give. Mm -hmm. And the results, of course, vary. And, and they're, they're really interesting to read through these different reasons why donors give. But time and time again, one of the top reasons is because somebody who the donor knows and respects asks them to give. Yep. And a professional fundraiser asking for a gift is further down the list. That's not to diminish in any way the great work that professional fundraisers are doing, but instead to emphasize that this idea of peer-to-peer -peer fundraising 
is a really powerful one and something that we should take into account when we're developing our resource development strategies. How can staff work together with board members or other volunteers who are close to the organization to meet more people and get more gifts? So that's where we're operating from at a baseline. Now, your question about boards. What I always think about with CEOs and board chairs is how does your board see their role? Because you're absolutely right that not all boards see themselves as fundraising boards. So I like to get really clear in, you know, what does the board see as their primary responsibility? And how far down the list is resource development? Because the answer to that question is going to help us form an appropriate strategy. So if a board is just early in their journey to becoming one that is more accustomed to resource development, you can start small. Start by having some sort of standing agenda item related to resource development. I've worked with a number of nonprofits where they, they've set a goal I'll use a, a legacy society, for instance, where they want X percentage of their board members to indicate that they've left a legacy gift for the organization. And I've seen some really beautiful things done at the board level where every board meeting, somebody who has signed up for this legacy society shares why they've decided to do that. It's it's personal, it's impactful, it's brief. It's to the point. It, it doesn't need to be a huge portion of your board agenda, but it, it goes beyond the board chair or the CEO or your development director, where you're asking other board members to demonstrate what their own personal commitment is to the organization through their philanthropic decisions. So that would be something to consider. What does that one standing board agenda item look like related to philanthropy? Um, but the, the other item to consider is what does your committee structure look like related to philanthropy? We work with a number of boards that have development committees in place, and we've seen that work to varying extents. Sometimes a development committee is meant to hear reports about the philanthropic activity for the organization, how many new donors they're getting, you know, what 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 is their progress toward their their goal for fundraising for the year. Uh, if if that committee is there just for reporting out or receiving reports, that's something that can be revamped as you're going into a capital campaign because the the necessity of a really dynamic group of volunteers is is there when you're in campaign mode you need to have a committee who's not just there to hear reports but is willing to open doors make introductions and ideally work with staff hand in hand to ask for gifts for the campaign 
So one thing that we've done with quite a few organizations is either enhance that development committee with some additional volunteers and resources to um, emphasize the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising model, or in some cases, we've done a separate committee called a campaign cabinet or a steering committee. But I'll talk about them as one and the same, because whether you're repurposing or creating new, they're going to have a similar job description. You want a group of seven to 10 people on average who has a very clear job description that includes maintaining a small portfolio of donors who have the affinity for the organization and the propensity to make a gift to the campaign. Existing donors. Existing donors and new donors. Okay. This is the exciting part about this model. Um, these people can certainly work with existing donors if they have a connection to them. It's a great way to elevate them, as I was mentioning before, they elevate their giving level. If a volunteer who knows the donor can work in partnership with the staff member to make that argument for the donor about why they should be giving at a certain level, especially when the organization is in the middle of a campaign. So yes, their portfolios can include existing donors, but also new donors, because we, we do want to see if we can get some new people coming into the organization through a campaign. And the best people to do that are volunteers who are going to open doors to other people in the community. And how do you identify who those new donors are? Sometimes volunteers are, are willing to freely offer names who they're willing to work on. Um, other times we do a guided activity called a sphere of influence. Um, this might be familiar to, to others who are listening, where it offers a variety of questions that helps your volunteers really go through their networks and think about those who would be interested in the campaign. Because we've probably all been in situations with boards or volunteers where you're sitting around a table and, and you're trying to brainstorm names and it, it feels really difficult in the moment. And you might get some people who are saying, oh, I just, I just don't know anyone. I'm not sure if I can be helpful here. We've found with some guided questions about you know, professional affiliations, civic organizations, even college connections, it gets people thinking in a different way about the vastness of their network. So that might be an idea to pull out some additional names from your volunteers. So ultimately, our, our goal is to figure out even two to three names that each volunteer can work on. And then we're coaching them through the cultivation strategy all the way up through the solicitation and stewardship of that donor. Those are just spot on. Um, you know, I asked you for some practical tips and that's exactly what those were. I'm wanting to go back now though. You made a statement that, that I think is really, really powerful. You said that responding to professional fundraisers is way down the list. <laughs> so the, yeah. the reason the peer to peer, you know, when someone who knows you, you were talking about the reasons people give and well, because somebody who I know and respect or, um, asked me and, and the, that the professional fundraiser is usually way down that list if they're on that list at all. So that begs the question, what does the professional fundraiser do? 
And, yeah. and I, I mean, to me, the answer is obvious. I've spent, you know, like I said, I spent 20 years in United Way. I, I, you know, certainly experienced a lot of this peer to peer modeling. I think they perfected it years ago. I remember back in the nineties, mm-hmm. this campaign, talk about a campaign cabinet, talk about peer to peer and going through account yeah. lists and having portfolios. I mean, they were, they were fully mobilized. Now you not only have professional fundraising, uh, fund development staff, you have contracted fund development staff and project-based, uh, fractional, I think, as you called it on yes. our call the other day. And if the professional fundraiser who's, if the resource development director or the CEO is way down the list, boy, the contract person is probably not even on the list. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I want you to give this organization, I don't actually work for them. <laughs> I'm just helping them raise money. So, which again is not what they go and say, but what is their best use, particularly the fractional or contracted resource development staff or mm-hmm. professionals, I yeah. should say. Yeah. Well, to back up for just a moment, um, you, you mentioned that you and I had talked about this over the phone a bit, um, this is something that our firm has started to offer in response to something we've heard from our existing clients and prospective clients where when they've lost a resource development leader, whether it's a development director, senior VP of development, major gifts officer, they want to be really intentional about the hiring process. And that takes time. We, we know that putting a job description together and posting it and conducting those interviews, you you can lose a few months in that process. So we happen to have a pool of consultants who are available to step in on an interim basis to bridge the gap so that work is still being done while a full-time hire is being vetted and secured. And I do think there are boundaries around what that person can do, whether the organization is in a campaign or not. Um, that person is there to manage the development team, to keep the volunteers moving on their ass if they're working on a specific portfolio. Um, Essentially, the, the contract person should have three to five key priorities over that interim term. Um, Typically in our experience, that's four to six months. And we wanna be really realistic about what can be accomplished over that timeframe. Again, it's about management of expectations for the executive director, for the board, for anyone who has contact with this interim person. And some things that I, I think they can do they can work with donors. They can certainly help maintain those relationships as long as they are being clear about what their role is with the organization. As long as they're clear that, you know, you were in contact with Sally, who was a longtime relationship manager. I've been, you know, keeping in touch with everything that's going on with your contact with the organization. I understand that, this is our next step so that there's there's a recounting of the history of what's happened. And then that person can say, I'm going to be your main point of contact, at least for the next few months. And then I'll make sure that you're introduced and there's a clear transition into the next person. So I, I always say, let's not um, let's let's always be clear 
with donors and, and any stakeholders with the organization that there is a very seasoned professional holding that interim role but that there are boundaries around that, that they're meant to be a bridge, they're meant to keep the ship going until a full-time person is there. Um, but we we work with people who are accustomed to serving in these interim roles and are able to get up to speed really quickly and pop in. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm reminded that, at least from my perspective, for organizations that are looking to hire a resource development director, for example, so many times we think about the actual fundraising aspect of it, the asking. Yeah. When in reality, what a professional can probably do more powerfully for an organization is just help you think about how you raise money, the mm -hmm. strategy behind it. What's the story? What are we actually selling? Who have we not hit where are where who is the you know just just in in corporate marketing who is your avatar you know who's your let's right. profile who the most likely donor of this is do you have alumni do you have you know what about your board how are they connected a professional fundraiser is going to ask those kinds of questions just as a professional marketing firm is not going to come in and start with okay we're going to do a facebook page and a website and a video they're going to come in and say what are your marketing objectives? Who are you marketing to? What do you want to get from them? And where, where can we find them? And what's your messaging and how do we tie your brand in? So that to me is the skill set that many nonprofits struggle to find and retain is that strategic fund development mindset, mm -hmm. not the ability to sell. That's the salesperson. And, and right. you know, if that, so if an interim, for example, can help, a board, uh, a CEO, frame an ask, identify an ask, maybe even go with them on an ask. But is it, isn't it that strategic thinking and let's build the plan effectively and what are we even using as a donor database and how, do, how are you going to mm -hmm. capture that? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do the next time? Who are the new? To me, that's the more difficult skill set, but the one that you have to have before you have the actual knowing how to ask somebody for money skill set. Right. Well, and I think with all of those things you described, then asking for money becomes so much easier yeah. and more natural. It, al it almost when, doesn't feel like it. Right. You know, and I mean, when you think about fundraising as relationship based versus transactional, yeah. which is how, how we frame resource development, you really need to be thoughtful about those steps that you're taking with a donor. And you're absolutely right. We, we work with a number of organizations where they have all of these wonderful people in their, their database. They have people who are engaging with them in a variety of ways. But when you really peel back the onion a little bit and look at you know, what is your strategy to take this donor from where they are today to the potential that they have based on what they're giving to other organizations, based on just your trajectory that you'd like to see for that donor? How do you get from A to B? And, uh, you know, a, a recurring theme that we see across all nonprofits is just not quite having the capacity to think that strategically because there's so much to do 
day to day just to maintain where the relationship is right now. So I do think you're you're spot on when you talk about an, an interim person and coming in with fresh eyes, a strategic hat on to think about the the donor file as a whole and where the or where the opportunities are in that. A seasoned, successful, respected nonprofit CEO asked me one day after I had left organizational leadership and launched my own coaching business very shortly after I had done that, I was considering kind of jumping back in. That's what I do. And that's, you know, and, and she said, why would you want to jump back into that? And I said, I was, I was a little taken aback that this person who had invested their life and was just one of the most respected people in the country, I will tell you. And, uh, she was like, why would you want to do that? Like, get out, like run while you can, you have a chance, <laughs> save yourself. And, uh, I asked her, I said, why would you ask that? And she said, Patrick, because I think more and more today boards that are hiring CEOs are really hiring glorified chief development officers that, that huh. more and more boards are feeling that the CEO's number one job is to raise money. Now we yes. could debate that you and I won't, yeah. I, I don't have a, I don't have a, a you know, a dog in that hunt, I guess. Um, other than raising money was not one of the things I, uh, not one of the best things I did when I was in organizational leadership. I did leadership. I did strategy. I did vision casting. I did, you know, I think I was really good at employee engagement. Fundraising was not a strength of mine. Finance was not a strength of mine. One reason I launched the coaching business was let's take what I was really good at and go do that and serve the sector better. What's your take on that in terms of the CEO's role in raising money? Good, bad, man, I can certainly see both. We talked about, you know, hoping, hopefully that the gifts that people give are philanthropic and they transcend an individual, but are you seeing more of that where the CEO spends uh, an enormous amount of their bandwidth on fund development? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am seeing that uh, in one word, yes. <laughs> And I, I think in campaigns where I've focused the majority of my time, um, we're seeing CEOs spend 60 to 70% of their time on fundraising for the campaign. Uh, I, I think this is a really interesting and multi-layered question because I do feel strongly that there needs to be a lot of thought and communication put into um, the the overall resources resource development strategies so that donors are invested in the organization and its mission and not any one person, whether it's the executive director or development director. But with that said, the executive director is going to be really successful when they surround themselves with either fellow staff or volunteers who are going to help them identify those donors who do require interaction with the executive director. And, and that's always how I've thought about this is that a really good resource development person is going to be able to 
look at the the universe of the organization's donors and segment those where the executive director should have a meeting and then help decide on how often the the executive director should meet with those donors what the strategies should be yeah. so that the resource development person is a really solid partner with the executive director and it's always helpful if if executive directors have an interest in fundraising find some joy in fundraising that's great if that happens but if that's not the case then i would say get that circle surrounding the executive director get those people who do get a lot of joy in fundraising so that they can cherry pick the people who rise to that level of of having a meeting and and i'm i'm not trying to be um exclusionary with that statement mm -hmm. i i think all donors are important and their gifts are are really important but we also know that there are certain donors whether it's their giving level or their reputation in the community who just need a little bit of extra love from the executive director I completely agree with what you're saying. I don't, I don't think it's exclusionary as much as it is just maximizing, again, maximizing the CEO's time. I remember at the largest United Way that I led, you know, I walked in and, and they told me who I was going to visit and who I was calling on. Back, in fact, I was, new right. to the, I was new to the community, so it was going to take me a while to develop the kinds of relationships, and but but they set me up and partly my board and partly my, I think my board set me up with, here's who you need to go talk to about United Way and you need to go meet them and, you know, mm -hmm. show your face during the United Way campaign. It was my staff between, between my executive assistant and the, the resource development director saying, these are the accounts Patrick needs to go, you know, yes. and, and I'm happy to take him or I'm happy to go with him or, but these are the accounts that, that they're going to, they're going to, want to see Patrick, Patrick's going to want to see them. And, you know, like it or not, there is an 80, 20 rule in, you know, in fundraising when I mean, you, you really yes. do have to pay attention to those, those major donors. I think it's a, a matter of, um, yes, obviously the CEO has to be engaged in fund development, but it's about how, and mm -hmm. it's about making sure that they're not doing the, um, as much of the coordinating, organizing, analyzing, reporting, tracking work, they're doing more of the relationship. Exactly kind of work in exactly. that. Um, let me just ask you this. I've, I've got a couple of other questions for you that are, that are sort of, um, we'll wrap the show with, and they're not quite on fundraising, but let me just, let me just ask, is there anything else for nonprofits that are considering capital campaigns um, or any of the other things that we've, we've talked about? Is there another major tenant or a, another story or anything that you'd want to relate that my questions haven't given you a chance to highlight yet? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's really worth putting it out there. The, the importance of developing your case for funding. It sounds relatively basic, but it's really not. Because it's not. It, it's not. You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. It's, it's not an easy thing to put together. And we sometimes have clients come to us where it reminds me of the situation that you brought up where the building had already been purchased and they're considering a campaign for the debt financing. When steps are done out of order, it's not that you can't be successful. It just makes the timeline stretch out and makes the whole task harder. 
And one of those key steps that you cannot skip over is that case statement. And this can be honestly a, a simple Word document. We do a lot of design work for our clients to make these into beautiful brochures. What's most important though, the words themselves. What is your argument? What is your need? What problem are you solving with this campaign? And then what is your budget? Um, what What is the, the rationale behind a five, 10, $15 million campaign? Because we get so many questions from really curious, interested donors that we need to be prepared to answer. So I just can't overstate the importance of having a tight case for support but also being willing to let that case evolve over time. Um, another basic tenet is, is doing a feasibility study. I, I would highly advise doing a feasibility study for any major campaign where you're asking your donors for their feedback on the case and asking for what they're, they're willing to support the campaign with. But you need to have a core case and, and still be willing to tweak that along the way because campaigns can last years at a time. If, it, if it's a static case from the feasibility study to the goal achievement, that's not going to be uh, listening to your community. You need to have some flexibility in that and update it along the way with things like your progress to goal, with new quotes from the community, with uh, you know, all of these things that happen along your campaign journey. So be able to roll with that case while still keeping the, the key foundation intact. If I can add to that a, a little bit, um, I heard, I heard a, a United Way leader years ago really make a powerful statement. He said, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to shift our, the calls that we make to these big company CEOs, because we go in and we say, Hey, Mr. CEO, Thank you for your $10,000 last year in our campaign. Unfortunately, things are worse and we need, we, we know, so we're bumping our goal up this year by 5%. And so we're hoping you can raise your gift by 5% this year to the $10,000 you gave us, you know? Okay. Well, that's not a whole lot of, that's not a big ask. First of all, it's not a bold ask, but it's also an ask made more out of desperation you know, Hey, we're, the, we're hurting, right? Our budget got cut. Our, we lost a grant. So, and so company left, we, you know, so we, we're, we, we need, you know, if you can give 5% more and help us fill the gap, this sort of, you know, you're filling a gap and you're, you're, um, you're helping us make our budget. And it, it, there's this feel of just sheer desperation and, and failure, you know, quite frankly. And he said, we've got to shift that to Mr. CEO. Thank you for your $10,000 last year. Here's what we did with it. Mm -hmm. And, um, without that gift, we couldn't, that, that wouldn't have been made possible without that gift and gifts like yours. Here's what we really want to do. And we believe now we're positioned to go yeah. to a higher level. And we're asking you if you'd be willing to double your gift over the next two years to help us get there. So now you're selling aspiration. You're not selling desperation. You're selling right. a solution. You're selling, hey, look, here's what's possible if you give. Here's what's possible if you and others give more. And to me, that needs to be as big a part, if not a bigger part of our case, than, oh my gosh, you know, a third grade reading is dismal in this community and our budget is such and such. And we took a cut from this, that, and the other and inflation, woe is us, please give us money. 
I think that's where the cases in nonprofits across the sector can be made so much stronger. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the last thing I'll say, and I will, I do want you to take on this one too, because you, I mentioned early on when I was introducing you, your love for helping connect nonprofit mission with donors, meaning mm-hmm. how can we, how can we make them feel like this is something I want this? I'm interested in this. I have a vested interest in this, whether it's going to strengthen my workforce or I just care about kids or I'm a, you know, a previous uh, beneficiary of some of the services, whatever that is, but linking that it's not just, Hey, we need this and you've got money. Mm-hmm. It's, Hey, mm-hmm. you, you've got, you've got means and we want to know, we, we think we can be your best partner in putting your philanthropic interests to the best use in this community. Cause we're positioned to do that. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll shut up and let you sort of um, give your thoughts on those, those two things, the, the idea of selling aspiration over desperation and then how to connect with donors, which goes into the donor research. Right. Well, well the idea of, of sharing aspiration versus desperation, it, it, it reminds me about, you know, various conversations that are happening across the sector around scarcity versus abundance, which I think has some some link to what you're talking about. Uh, I think nonprofits default in many cases is to just, you know, think there's there's not enough, but yet we need more. And how are we going to solve this problem? And oh, I'm I'm scared to make the ask. I'm not sure if we can do this you need to ask for what you need. Uh, you know, especially in in a major campaign, we always coach our clients to really get a strong grasp on the full budget because we need to tell donors, this is going to be a one-time special gift and we're not going to come back in year two or three. So we want to make sure that we're really factoring in the whole picture for the campaign. Um, and I found that when you go for that aspirational message, which is bigger, more expensive, it's going to look a little bit different than just asking for the bare minimum, but it is more inspiring to donors. They want to be part of that when they see transformation, when they see that the organization has put a lot of time and thought into what this will look like when we're all in. I mean, th- that's really the message that, you know, we we are at a place as an organization where we need a, a big investment to take it to that next level. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that resonates with donors because it invites them to be part of it yeah. versus give me something to um, just get by that, that. That's a very different message. Yep. Yeah. And that's then, right. w- yeah, with, with your question about linking donors to, to mission and the good work that nonprofits are doing, I'm thinking about a campaign that I worked on a few years ago. Um, that was for a conservation organization. It was linked to restoring land to secure clean drinking water And it was an interesting campaign to work on because we were asking donors to invest in something proactively to um, secure this land before it got degraded. So it it was sort of an insurance policy campaign versus help us fix a problem. That can be a harder message for some donors because um, we're, we're asking them to think about what 
could happen and we want to prevent that from happening. So we really worked a long time on the case statement and making sure that it was clear to the donors. And I remember having a conversation with a donor who was considering a major investment in the campaign. And she talked a lot about legacy, about her grandchildren and the importance of having clean drinking water for them and beautiful spaces that they could visit that were preserved and they didn't have, you know, lots of buildings and concrete on top of them. And she took the case to this next level in the conversation that I had with her. And it was just really eye-opening for me because that wasn't something we wrote about on paper, but as she and I had a conversation about what it would look like to make a transformational gift, you know, she started linking this to her own family and really brought it to that next level where this investment was personal. It was about the future. It was about you know, generational security in her family. And that's what I'm talking about when I, I think about linking an organization's work to really deeply held thoughts and beliefs that individuals have. Um, we, we, we do as much as we can in philanthropy to make sure that people know their gifts are going to be well stewarded and that their, their gift really matters for the long run. And just this interaction with the donor, I, I felt so good about that, that she, she got that message from the case. The word that comes to mind there is significance. And you've mm -hmm. what, what you're doing there in your story is you've opened the door for them to feel significant, for them to feel like their right. gift is, has significance and, and has a meaning more than I gave to charity, leave me alone now. <laughs> um, so I, I really like right. that. Um, wait, Whitney, we could really go on. I've, I've got five other questions lined up, ready to ask, but I want to, I don't want to do information overload. Um, <laughs> let me just ask you a, a couple of questions. I love to ask all my guests. I love the stories that I get on this. Who's a leader in your life? The first person that comes to mind as having the greatest impact on your point of view of leadership. We've been talking a lot about fundraising. So shifting the gear to leadership, whether that's leadership and fundraising or just leadership in general, who comes to mind as that person who helped really frame your point of view on that and why? Mm -hmm. Well, the person who immediately comes to mind for me is my student government advisor. When I was an undergraduate, I was actively involved in student government across all four years. And her name is Shelly. She and I still keep in touch. I just got her Christmas card a few weeks ago. And I, I went to a school that really valued vocation, and that was a theme throughout my education, really linking your own personal passions and your skills with how you can contribute in the world through your, your job. It's much more than a job. It's, it's a vocation that we're trying to seek, and I think I've found that in, in my work now, but I just recall in my experiences with Shelly, she was always trying to find opportunities to elevate me as a leader. She would send me different articles or recommend workshops. And 
it was all about building me up and providing me with opportunities for growth. And I saw that not only with me, but all of the other students who I was working with in student government, where it, it just felt so focused on growth and empowerment. And that's always stuck with me. And it, it, it really helps me work with my colleagues at Fox Advancement and looking out for them and opportunities to really build on their skills, help point them in the direction of resources that would be valuable to them because she did that for me and it made all the difference. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Um, that was, I was, you, you had me at, you know, a lot of times we'll hear, well, a former boss or my mother or somebody, this was yeah. a unique person. This was yeah. a person uniquely placed in your life. So that that's great. Last question for you. Um, I love to hear a people's uh, sort of number one tenets of leadership. So if you had 20 seconds with a megaphone and all the leaders of the world were in front of you to hear the Dr. Whitney Anderson, number one principle of leadership that all leaders need to know, what would that be for you? Yeah. I would say be nimble. That word nimble has stuck in my head um, since 2020 for reasons that I think we can all relate to. Mm. The ability to see change as opportunity and wow. to really lean into that, I, I think is a skill that I'm constantly working on and one that I've seen with the leaders across our client base when they've been just going through tremendous change through the pandemic and they've had to increase their services and they've had staff turnover and in capital campaigns we've had some crazy stuff happen with uh, building deals and it, it's just change is constant and i see leaders deal with that with grace with curiosity with you know not despair, even though they could go there when, when there's just such constant change. And I admire that so deeply. And it's something that I'm trying to emulate, just taking a step back when I experience a change that feels really jarring in my day-to-day -day work and looking at it as, what can I learn from this? Mm. What additional opportunities does this open up for me? Um, that, that would be my one piece of advice. And like I said, I'm trying to follow that myself as well and that's the thing I, I I'm a coach and I, I I try to stay in the question zone but oftentimes you know I'll give advice or my perspective on things and I have to constantly say hey you remember that too you know um, yeah. <laughs> li living it ourselves be nimble Ben don't break I love it um, Whitney thank you so much if, folks if you want to learn more about uh, what Whitney's doing what Fox advancement is doing and uh, see if they might be of support to your organization foxadvancement.com is the place to go. Go to foxadvancement.com. The link is on our podcast page as well if you forget and want to go back to that. Whitney, thanks again. Appreciate you coming on. Lead on, Thank folks. Thank you so much.